Chapter 41 I embarked upon this crazy odyssey for a supposed job interview in Washington, D.C. That ploy wouldn't even come together if Margaret hadn't thrown that goddamn surprise party for me a month ago at our place in Key West. I'm about 1,500 miles away from there right now, and only a couple of weeks have passed since then. Yet the peculiar events seem to have happened in a different galaxy, a different lifetime. It was like every other day in the Florida Keys, sunny and cloudless. Late that afternoon, I drove home from Monroe County Courthouse, also known as Freeman Justice Center on Fleming Street, where I worked as a public defender for a flock of penniless felons. Our quaint palm-lined street was eerily still. Not a soul was anywhere in sight. No one was mowing their lawns, no washing their SUVs. The reality of my everyday life was drearily predictable. I pulled into our driveway and parked behind Margaret's car. Just the end of another wasted day. Then I opened the front door and was stunned to find our place packed with people shouting my name. Cameras flashing, corks popping out of champagne bottles. Happy birthday, Luke. Happy birthday, they screamed in unison. Oh, God, how I wanted to ignore my 40th just like I had tried to ignore all my birthdays. Margaret obviously thought it was a milestone that had to be celebrated. So there I am, standing in shock at the front door, staring at all the people in our home, speechless, exhausted, unshaven, and suddenly covered in cold sweat. I moved my glazed eyes through the crowd in disbelief, trying to find one welcome face until I spot Nicholas. You came all the way from D.C. for this crap, I shouted at him, pointed at Margaret, hinting as if he had no choice. Suddenly, she's in front of me with her arms around my neck, whispering into my ear. Many happy returns of the day, my love. Before I can respond, she lands a kiss on my lips that turns into a long, flaming smack in full display for all our guests to admire. Surprised, I kiss her back so as not to disappoint the spectators. And she responds with an even more fiery, intense kiss. It becomes unending. The partygoers start exchanging embarrassed looks, but Margaret doesn't seem to care. She keeps on kissing me. Finally, she pulls her lips away after what seemed an eternity to me. The crowd had gotten quiet, so when she turns back to face everyone, they all have a slightly baffled look on their faces. The situation seems terribly comical to Margaret, and she bursts into uncontrollable laughter. I don't think I've ever seen her laugh harder, giggling, then howling, and finally cackling her laughter ringing out unabashedly. It's so contagious that one by one all our guests join in. Now everybody is laughing. The silliness of the scene is impossible to resist, so I too join in the laughter, though the look on my face must have been one of bewilderment. As she catches her breath, Margaret puts her arms around me and hugs me one more time. Happy 40th, my dear Luke, she whispers into my ear. My wish for you is to love me as much as I love you. Without giving me a chance to answer her with any of my half-truths, Margaret takes my hands and leads me into the living room where I'm surrounded by well-wishers. I shake all the hands and kiss all the cheeks I can, then extricate myself going through the kitchen, grabbing a cold beer from the fridge and slipping outside to the patio for a little peace. There, I find Nicholas behind our gas-powered stainless steel barbecue grilling burgers and hot dogs for the hungry hordes of party yours. 
He's wearing a chef apron and seems to be enjoying his kitchen patrol. I'm so relieved to find someone I can talk to. Bless you, my friend, I say, for being here. Wouldn't have missed it for anything, said Nicholas. I'm also relieved to find my son, Julian, who gives me his perfunctory hi, Dad, while focusing on all the sizzling patties on the grill. My boy has already slathered up a bun with thick goops of mustard and ketchup, impatiently waiting the sizzling burger that Nicholas now flips onto Julian's paper plate. You coming back? asked Nicholas. No way, Jose. Luke, be serious. You can't be a public defender for the rest of your life. More than ever, we need you in human rights. Younger lawyers are out there ready to jump in. You are one of the brightest and bravest people working in our field. Listen, Nick, that's not the guy I see every morning in the mirror. Still, they want you back. There's an opening with an important New York firm. You'd be perfect for them. They're working on Sudan. Didn't you see on CNN what's happening over there? It's horrible. Almost two million people are trapped in a famine zone with no help in sight. They're mostly women and children, of course. The world has gone mad, my friend. We've got to do something about it. I listen respectfully to my friend's plea, and then I tell him, Nick, this world's always been mad. Nothing has changed, except now we have CNN to tell us about it. I can't do it anymore. We've talked about this before. I fix him with eyes so he can see my resolve. I just can't. I'm done. I spot Margaret in the backyard with a group of guests, chatting happily, laughing, looking every bit the unruffled hostess. The people gather around her seem to relish every word she says, every gesture she makes. She's a gem, says Nick, glancing at Margaret as well. You're so lucky to have her. An award should be given to my wife for... Nicholas looks at me with a question mark on his face until I finish the thought. Putting up with me. I take another gulp of cold beer, turn back to Nicholas and purposely change the tone. What's the name of that firm? Rosenbach, Garfield, Marsh, and Brownman. What harm could come from just meeting them? That's the spirit, says Nicholas with genuine enthusiasm. I'll set it up for you. You're a great man, my friend. No, says Nicholas. It's you who's made a real difference, not me. One of the partners, Brian Rosenbach, told me they can get some Hollywood celebrities for you. Celebrities, I laughed. Those starving people need protection and food, not some fucking Hollywood type. Don't you see what's wrong with that picture? You're right, Luke. Just go with your instinct. I'm not going anywhere, but if I do, this time you're coming with me. It's a deal. My buddy Nick is ready to say anything just to get me back into the human rights game. Even if I can smell bullshit a mile away, his sincere esteem is still welcome. The rest of the party is a blur, probably because I drank several more beers to numb the boredom of it all. I do remember hugging Nicholas and thanking him for coming. After he left for the airport, I also recall the tropical rainstorm that thankfully blew in from the Gulf of Mexico and chased off the last stubborn guests. Our home was a gigantic mess, but finally it was quiet enough to hear a human voice that wasn't yelling some empty compliment or polite nonsense at me. Margaret and I were sitting on the sofa in the living room, enjoying the calm after the storm. Julian had conked out in his room from an overdose of barbecue, soft drinks, and birthday cake. Balloons, empty bottles, and dirty paper plates with uneaten food were all over the place. Margaret was drinking a final glass of champagne from a plastic flute, observing me closely as she sipped the bubbly. Nicholas wants me to interview with a D.C. firm. 
I thought you were finished with human rights work. I am, but it doesn't hurt to talk with them. No, it doesn't, she says, taking my hand with hers. Maybe it's time we talk, too. About what? Do you... Do you love me? Says Margaret, ever so softly. I do love you, Margaret. I needed to hear that. I sense Margaret is relieved, though her voice is trembling. Honey, I say, you made a wonderful party. And you hated almost every moment of it, she says. I decline to respond. I just stand up and start putting trash into a big black plastic garbage bag. After a minute of silence, I turn back toward her. I'm going to D.C. for the interview. Maybe an interesting opportunity. My words almost drive my wife to tears, but she holds them back bravely. Margaret understands immediately that the interview is a ruse, but says nothing. Just nods her head in silent accord. Staring at me plaintively, her sad eyes beg me to stop thinking about the other woman. I stare back at her. My eyes say I can't. Chapter 42 Day in the country was the cryptic message Louisa left me, along with the exact spot to meet her. The northeast corner of 27th Street and the West Side Highway. That was ten years ago. But I still remember every detail as if it were yesterday. I reached our rendezvous spot ahead of schedule so as to not make her wait. Right on time, she pulled up in her white Corvette and stopped on a dime next to me. I leaned down with a big smile on my face. Neither of us said a word. Words were not necessary. Then I walked around to her side of the car and opened her door, motioning with my hands that it was my turn to drive. She laughed with that delightful laugh of hers and slid her luscious body over to the passenger seat without a whimper. I pulled out and accelerated to keep pace with the massive crush of trucks and cars heading out of the city. People were driving home to the suburbs after another day of work. We still said nothing to each other, but she put her right hand on my thigh and turned to study me closely. I kept my eyes on the road, but I couldn't help seeing peripherally how she was staring so intently at me. What? I finally said. She doesn't respond, still keeping her eyes steady on my face, though with a playful look of sudden discovery. What? I ask again. Why are you looking at me like that? Without a word, she climbs on top of my lap, throwing her legs over my shoulders and starts kissing me. I'm trying to steer the car in traffic, leaning my head one way and the other to see the highway around her hair. All the while, cars are zipping by us. She covers my face with passionate kisses. Hey, what are you doing? I say, panicking a little. She doesn't seem to hear me, nor has she any intention of stopping the kisses. I'm about to plow into the car in front of us, which is to break suddenly, so I stamp on the Corvette's brakes. We stop abruptly and I hear other cars screeching to a halt behind us. Horns are honking angrily at me and a massive line of vehicles of all sizes are backed up behind Luis's Corvette. Drivers of cars in either lane who are passing us on the right and left shout furious insults at us as they move by. Luisa hardly notices all the mayhem. She just keeps kissing me with a force and focus that is mind-boggling. Traffic jam. She just doesn't care a whit about traffic jams. As much as I want to try to advance the car, I can't resist the taste of her lips. I start kissing her back, now blind to all the traffic myself, engulfed in her fire. 
as cars and trucks make their way around us and traffic on the West Side Highway starts to flow again. Our paralysis in the middle lane of the busy thoroughfare becomes even more dangerous. At any moment, we might be slammed. But miraculously, passing cars and trucks slow down and seem to detour around us carefully, as if they don't want to disturb us. Drivers are lowering their windows and staring at us in awe, as if trying to catch a glimpse of our daring circus act. We become the suicidal love attraction on the highway. After they get a glimpse of us kissing deeply, drivers speed away and new ones appear. Each face is different. They're like balloons in the corners of my eyes. Some raging mad, some envious, some giving us the finger or the peace sign, others crossing their wrists as if they wished someone would arrest us. All of a sudden it occurs to me that it isn't us who are the attraction. It's the world that's on stage. The world of people passing by our parked car is the real theater. Louisa and I, the audience. All these faces are a carousel of unique characters wearing masks and costumes from their own plays. Our love provokes them. It insults them, it inspires them, it embraces them, it amuses them, and for a precious few, it brings tears to their eyes. Both of us realize that parked there in the middle of the highway circus, we might die in each other's arms crushed by a 16-ton tanker. It simply doesn't matter. Danger, pain, punishment, nothing matters anymore. Our love is bigger than any highway, bigger than any bridge or city or country, bigger than the world. We have created our own universe where nothing can stop us from loving one another. So we keep on kissing, and cars keep going around us, respecting our island of love. She unbuttons my shirt, her hands so tender. She touches my neck and chest, and I feel her palms sweating just like before. She is breathless as I slide my hands between her thighs. Her body convulses, silently screaming that she is ready for me. In the depths of her eyes, I see the untamed gazelle running wild again, and there is no turning back. Afterwards, I put the idling Corvette into gear and speed away along the Hudson River, under the George Washington Bridge and upstate along the Taconic. We're silent for the entire drive, physically silent. Our mouths are not moving, nor do we utter any sounds whatsoever. What is happening in the car between us is the opposite of silence. It's a symphony of devotion exploding inside our souls, expanding the universe. The rain has stopped, so we open the windows. Cool wind blows in, caressing and playing with her hair, then ricochets off me, leaving all her scents on my skin and in my nostrils. I can smell all of her thoughts of love, all her desires, all her hopes. Buried underneath her beauty, I am feeling alive. Like a newborn, I am tasting life like I have never known it existed, all by just sitting next to her. Chapter 43 She tells me to exit the highway at the sign that says Bear Mountain State Park. Once we're moving toward the park gate, she has me turn off the paved road onto a gravel one used only by park rangers. We curve up and around into the heart of the forest. The gravel soon disappears. Now the road is nothing more than a narrow pockmarked dirt pathway snaking up the verdant hillside through poplars, maples, and pine trees. 
Cooper Corvette is not made for trailblazing, so before I crack an axle, I stop the car and turn off the engine. We get out, clasp hands, and walk up the pathway through the woods to a delightful plateau covered with countless willow trees, all standing side by side like old friends, their narrow leaves and slender twigs swaying gently in the afternoon breeze. We walk into the willows without exchanging a word, delighting in the sounds and smells and speckled sunlight. Then, without warning, she lets go of my hand and runs off. I follow her as best I can, pushing aside the leafy branches but lose sight of her. I follow her laughter, first across a creek with gurgling water, then through thicker woods. Her laughter echoes throughout the forest, making it difficult for me to figure out where it's coming from. Birds at the tops of the trees join in, chanting, cawing, warbling along with her. I'm not sure if I'm getting closer to her, but no matter, I have to pause to catch my breath. The afternoon sun shoots violet and orange shafts of light across the mountains, striking the undulating tops of all the trees with glittering luminosity. I hear calling my name. Or is it just the wind rustling the leaves? I start running after her again, past century-old trees who seem totally unimpressed by the mad lovers racing under their boughs. It's their forest, not ours. We are intruding on their home. Haven't they already seen it all? The wildest lovers, the most enraptured couplings, they will bend a little in deference to our energy, but it's more likely a sign of their disdain. They're probably wondering what the hell are these fragile, misguided creatures doing in their land of deep roots, gnarly branches and massive trunks. It's all magnificently new to me. As I run, I breathe in the forest's pungent, moist air. I am guided only by Luisa's enchanting scent somewhere up ahead. The treetops are so crowded that only a little sunlight penetrates down to the forest floor. I come out in a grassy open area, surrounded by mimosas and ash trees and silent vigil. The silence in this meadow is profound, as if all sound has been sucked out of the earth. I stand completely still, listening for a clue to her whereabouts. The quiet is interrupted by the singing of a far-off sparrow. And I hear light footsteps approaching me from behind. I feel her hands touching my shoulder like a gentle breeze. She puts her arms under mine and squeezes me from behind. I turn around to discover she's already taken off all her clothes except for her sneakers. She helps me get undressed and then leads me over to a nest she has already scouted out in the center of the meadow. Together we sink onto a thick grassy bed covered by a blanket of wildflower fragrances. The sun is moving lower in the western sky, the forest is bathed in a hazy, cotton-soft light. I cover her entire body with untamed kisses. My lips are trembling as I taste her sweet juices. She is serene, even as her breathing accelerates. She welcomes me inside her and raises her hips to greet me scissor gripping her legs around my waist to bring our bodies together even more powerfully. I am so deep inside her I feel as if I am making love to the meadow and the forest and the flowers and the trees, to the earth itself. The moment is so grand I feel we are sharing it with hundreds of other couples, all making love in meadows all over the world. They're all out there, 
and I alone can hear the far-off symphony of their cries of pleasure. Ah, thank you for this perfect orgy. I'm in love with the world, a world that's loving me back through this passionate woman. Louisa and I are one. That makes me one with the world. I open my eyes and discover teardrops rolling down her cheeks. I'm confused until she smiles at me, showing me that they're tears of joy. To my surprise, my eyes are awash with tears too. I don't know where they've come from because I never cry, never. They're salty tears. Maybe it's the sea inside me overflowing with waves of happiness. I roll off of her and we lie hand in hand with our heads touching, staring at the pink clouds sailing above us in the dusk sky, watching that cosmic spectacle. How can you not feel like the tiniest creature in the world? Louisa and I are nothing but minuscule, meaningless beings, yet somehow as sacred as children. In my innocence, I am blessed with the joy of prayer. I see clearly I have remained a child all my life. Like a child, I open my arms and I welcome the world. Like a child, I want to scream with joy. Like a child, all I want to do is play. I'm not afraid anymore, not afraid of being myself. For once in my life, for one brief moment in cosmic time, I am perfect. I scream with joy as loud as I can. Flocks of birds resting in the trees all over the forest are disturbed. I can tell by all the chirping and squawking that they are commenting on my outburst. Maybe they don't understand me, so I scream again. Louisa giggles at all the bird calls that come from the forest. She understands, and finally all the birds do too. They understand that an overjoyed child is celebrating his homecoming. They understand how much I am in love with this woman next to me, and they understand how much I am in love with the world. Finally, I am home. We both close our eyes, exhausted from so many intoxicating emotions and in perfect harmony with nature. I don't know how long we slept in that grassy meadow, but when I next open my eyes, the sky and trees have disappeared locked out by the fog that has rolled over the forest without a murmur. It almost seems like we've slept through spring and summer and woken up in the middle of autumn. The temperature has dropped too. The fog is so thick I can barely see my hand in front of my face. The strange muffled silence has descended over the forest and nothing stirs. Suddenly I hear gunshots and dogs barking in the distance, and more gunshots, this time a little closer. I get up, understanding immediately that a group of hunters and their hounds are steadily moving towards us. My stirring wakes Louisa. I lean down and gently touch her face. I got my love. She blinks her eyes. More gunshots ring out. What's that? We need to go. Get dressed. Okay. I hung my clothes on a tree over there. She can't see the tree in the fog, but sets off in the right direction. Found the tree, she calls out. I readjust my eyes and start looking for where I left my shirt and trousers. They're nowhere to be found. I can't find my dress, Louisa calls out. Ah, oh, shit, I whisper to myself. We keep looking in vain for our things. I can't believe someone sold our stuff, she says. All the way out here? Everything? I look down at my shoes and her sneakers and silently thank God we aren't barefoot. How would they do that, she says. 
I don't know, I say, rolling my eyeballs, recognizing that the situation is both funny and desperate. What are we going to do now, she asks. Follow me, I say. Let's go find your car. 